Hi, this is Kim Dixon. Welcome back to Weber County's Greatest Generation. Today we're going to be talking about part three of Private Lyle Knudsen's experiences as a POW in the Philippines. Originally, I thought that I would be able to do it in three episodes, but there is so much information that it's actually going to take a fourth episode to completely tell his story. Last week, we ended with Private Knudsen and the other POWs being evacuated from their prison camp after the American invasion of the Philippines. And this is what he said about it. We were all entirely convinced that we were winning the war. At this time, escape would have never been remotely considered. The rumor was circulating that we were being moved to be traded for an equal number of Japanese prisoners of war. As they moved them all, they were tied together with a rope on the march to the coast. And he says, we were tired, hungry, and thirsty. We had been on the move for over six hours and had never stopped for food or water. Tied up at the docks, there was an old freighter waiting for us to be loaded. We were ushered aboard and directed to an open hatch that measured approximately 12 feet square. A still ladder was mounted to the side of the opening which gave access to the cargo space below. We descended the ladder one by one and each step down the heat increased. We were not allowed to stop until we had reached the bottom. We bypassed two storage holes on our descent, but maybe they were loaded with other cargo. It was difficult to see the only light available coming from the open hatch on the deck above. I would estimate that the temperature in the cargo space we occupied was well over 100 degrees. It was getting more crowded, but still a steady stream of prisoners continued climbing down the ladder. It was soon so crowded that there was no place to sit down. He says the still ladder was unbolted as soon as the last man came down, and they still had to make room for the sick and those who were too weak to climb down, and they were lowered down in a net using the ship's winch. After that, the guards then placed heavy planks across the opening and tied them with ropes, and that only increased the temperature. They made additional room by hanging anything not immediately needed to the bolts on the sides of the freighter, and they were able to make enough room for everyone to sit down in between each other's legs. They had to take turns sleeping by those awake supporting those who were sleeping. He talks about the loud commotions on the deck. The guards would run and shout, and the prisoners could hear the sound of aircraft and loud explosions. At that time, the guards would place a heavy canvas tarp over the opening, and that reduced even more the oxygen available. When the alert ended and the tarp was removed, more than half the group was immobile from lack of oxygen. He said the removal of the tarp revived most of the prisoners, but it took some time for all to recover completely. He tells us that the procedure was repeated many times during the days on the freighter. It looked more and more like it was our final move and would be our final resting place. We desperately needed water. The temperature in the hold was so hot, it robbed our bodies of what little liquid we had left. After a while, the Japanese stayed closer to the island in order to avoid detection by the Americans. Private Knutson tells an interesting story about a chaplain whose name was Lafleur. He says he thought he was a lieutenant colonel, but he's not sure. He came down with the last group of the sick and disabled POWs who were lowered on the net. Private Knutson said he immediately saw the difficulties and hardships we faced and started to give instructions to help control the whole situation. From that time forward, the chaplain assumed control and we tried to comply with all of his instructions. Groups of 20 men were established among the prisoners occupying the same area. One man was selected to be in charge of each group. Each group was identified by a number. He said there were over 30 groups, so there had to be over 600 prisoners in the hold of this cargo ship. Private Knutson continues, our ration of food and water 
was lowered to us by rope and then divided for each group under the direction of the chaplain. When a group's number was called, this group would pass forward one container to receive the ration for the entire group. The container was then returned to the group and they divided it again so that each prisoner was given an equal amount. The ration was so small and yet so important, providing nourishment to 20 starving POWs. Final division was accomplished using a tablespoon, which helped ensure that each man received an equal amount. So the fact that their rations were divided by a tablespoon tells us about how much they were receiving. And remember, they are doing all of this in the dark. Private Knutson said the rations we received were deplorable, never exceeding four or five tablespoons of rice or water each day. We were so thirsty that many prisoners tried to trade their ration of rice for a ration of water, but it was never accepted. We prayed that our ration would be increased the next day, but it never happened. He goes on to talk about the chaplain. I hate to think of the disorder and violence that could have erupted among prisoners who were starving for food and water without the supervision and organization established by the chaplain. After a few days, it seemed to the POWs that it was getting cooler. He concluded that the movement of the freighter, combined with the dropping nighttime temperatures, was the reason. He said he never knew where they were going, but was reassured by the fact that they were moving. We had to believe that any destination would bring some relief from the thirst, hunger, and crowded conditions, and how thankful we would be when we had enough fresh air to breathe. He talks a lot about the shortage of food, but he thought that it was the shortage of water that affected them most. But whenever the guards would drop the tarp over the opening, I was sure we were only minutes away from death. He said we had almost lost our desire to live, unaware if it was day or night. He estimated that after about 12 days, they entered a harbor off Zamboanga, a peninsula on the southwest side of the island of Mindanao. They remained in the harbor for several days, and during this time, they were transferred from the freighter they were on to the Shinyumaru. He talks about a much-needed shower on the deck by hose. It was reported later that another hundred prisoners were loaded, but they never saw them and they thought they must have been placed in another hold. He says that they were grateful that the rations of food and water were increased considerably while they were in the harbor. They never put the tarp over the hold and that kindled a new spark of hope for them. When they finally departed, they had a new determination to survive, but that only lasted a short time. It seemed to them that the convoy came under attack more often now. Alerts were increased and they started putting the tarp over the hold three or four times a day and their rations were reduced to what they had received before. And he talks about how the rations were really important, but their biggest fear was that they would suffocate in the hold. On the fourth or fifth day, the Shinyo Maru became the primary target for attack. The tarp was again pulled over the hold and they could hear the guards on the deck running and shouting orders. The next noise they heard was unusual. Above all other noises, they could hear a machine gun firing. We couldn't understand who could be shooting, but it became immediately clear when a loud explosion shook the freighter and we knew a torpedo had found its target. The damage occurred just a short distance from our hold, but almost immediately we could feel the freighter was sinking. My concern at this time was death and drowning, but I didn't want to suffer anymore. I had suffered enough. I closed my eyes and opened my mouth, determined to drown myself by drinking seawater. I didn't want to struggle anymore. And then he says the chaplain stood up and started to recite the Lord's Prayer. He said, it was unbelievable how quiet and peaceful it was in the hold. It seemed we were all listening to the chaplain. He had barely finished when a violent explosion erupted in the hold. The concussion must have rendered me helpless for a short time. When I regained consciousness, I had the sensation of being in the water, 
and looking up, I could see the blue sky. Many of the planks and much of the tarp had been ripped away by the explosion. And in this short amount of time, I also noticed several pieces of rope used to tie the planks were hanging in the hold. All of this happened in just a matter of seconds. I could feel many hands clutching me trying to reach the surface, and I was soon pulled underwater. The blue sky and all the damage gave me strength and the desire to survive. The water was rising rapidly, and I managed to struggle and reach the surface again. I knew I couldn't maintain this position for more than a few minutes, but I was determined to grab one of the ropes, and I managed to do it. At first, the rope didn't appear to be tied to anything above, and I was rapidly sinking to the bottom. But at last, the slack in the rope disappeared, and it held tight. At times, I was sure at least five or six POWs were holding onto me, trying to gain access above the water. As long as the rope remained secure, it required little effort for me to remain on the surface and support the others who were striving to survive. Because the freighter was sinking, the water rose rapidly, and we were all soon on the deck. The first thing I remember hearing was shooting. Then I noticed several bodies sprawled on the deck. The deck was tilted quite steeply in the direction of the damage caused by the torpedo. Two lifeboats were maintained on each side of the freighter next to the cabins above the deck. The shooting was coming from guards who were standing there. They stood on the lifeboat shooting as it was lowered into the water. I knew I had to act fast. I ran to the side of the deck and dove into the water. I didn't surface right away. While under the water, I turned and swam back until I had reached the side of the boat. When I looked up, I found I was near the lifeboat being lowered. The guards who were shooting were directly above me. Using the sides of the freighter for protection, I started toward the rear. The freighter was sure to sink, and I didn't want to be anywhere near when that happened. Near the end of the freighter, I noticed four or five guards in the water coming in my direction. They had seen the lifeboat being lowered, and this was their destination. I knew I had lost my g-string getting out of the freighter, so I was completely naked. I knew I could move much faster than them, as dressed as they were. I believed they would also offer me extra protection from the shooting coming from the boat above. The first time I surfaced, I found myself among them. They seemed more concerned for their own safety and had no interest in me. I went underwater again, swimming as fast as I could. I wanted to put as much distance between me and the seeking freighter as I could. At last, I felt somewhat safer with my head above water. When I looked to the west, the sun appeared to be floating on top of the water. In a matter of minutes, it was no longer visible. Looking to the east, I could see land at a distance of 15 to 20 miles. The waves and tides seemed to be moving me in that direction. I noticed an object approaching me in the water that appeared to be something that I could use. It proved to be an old mattress, and I moved to retrieve it. My guess would be that the guards had been using these to sleep on the deck next to their guns. I was so grateful to have found such a valuable object. It supported most of my weight and would also furnish as a covering for my naked body if I reached the land. I could see several Navy vessels in the water to the north of my position. I noticed one of these vessels moving about occasionally stopping and I could hear the sound of gunfire. I soon realized the danger. They were picking up Japanese survivors from the water and shooting the prisoners. One of these vessels came nearer to my position each time it moved and stopped. By now, the tide was moving me in their direction. Placing one arm on the mattress, I started using the other arm to swim against the tide. Each time I stopped to rest, I hid my head behind the mattress, as well as I could in the hope of staying alive. It was getting quite dark, and I was thankful, hoping that I wouldn't be seen. 
but it was quite some time before I moved my head above the mattress to see what was happening. I hadn't heard any firing or other noise during this time. I was saved. I could see that vessel moving off in another direction. This is where Private Knudsen realized that he was no longer a prisoner and was free. He said he didn't think they could have survived the treatment in the freighter for many more days as they were all near death. He was floating toward the beach when daylight approached. He could see a coral reef protruding out of the water. It was much closer to him, however he thought it would be a dangerous place to be, so he continued toward the place that he thought was more safe. As he was in the water, he could see an object on the beach but couldn't make out what it was. But as he continued to move in the direction he thought most safe, and as the light improved he saw it was a beached freighter similar to the one that he had been on. It looked deserted, so he continued to move in that direction, keeping an eye out for any movement. He says when he got to about 300 yards from the beach he saw two individuals emerge from the water in front of him. They were starting up the beach toward the shore when machine gun fire came from the beached freighter. The two ran for cover. He had been watching them so closely that he didn't realize that the tide was now moving him closer to the freighter. He let the mattress go and started to swim for the coral. They spotted him right away and began shooting. He finally was able to reach the coral where he could hide, but he could see the bullets all around him hitting the water. He remained hidden until the shooting stopped and then moved to a larger coral reef where he could hide and stop and get some rest. He began moving toward the beach, but the waves were so large it kept slapping him against the coral. His legs were taking a beating, but he was able to protect his upper body. He finally reached the shoreline and had put distance between him and the freighter, but he wasn't taking any chances and he made a mad dash across the beach to reach the trees. He started looking for the two men he had seen. He says from their appearance and dress, I was sure that they had escaped from the same freighter. I was surprised to find them as soon as I did. They were sitting on the ground near the beach, eating coconuts. I drank the milk-like fluid from the coconut they gave me. One of them was wearing a double jeans string, one on top of the other, and he gave the extra one to me. My legs looked bad from the cuts, bruises, and scrapes from the coral. Already they had started to swell. My two newfound friends had both received damage to their eardrums from the explosions. Their ears were showing signs of weeping, and they both complained of the pain. So he goes on to say we were near a trail that seemed to be used quite often. We decided to stay hidden next to it to see if someone would be coming down to help us. In about an hour, they heard someone coming. We stepped out on the trail. He seemed ready to run, but when we spoke to him, he realized who we were and knew that we were friends. He told us that we were on the island of Mindanao on the peninsula of Zamboanga, exactly the same place that they had left several weeks ago. So this is where I'm going to stop part three. He's still in the middle of Japanese-occupied territory, and now he has to get to somewhere where he will be safe and find someone to help him. So join us next week for part four and the final part of Private Lyle Knutson's story. Remember, the podcast is available on iTunes or on my Facebook page, Weber County's Greatest Generation. Thanks for listening.